The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 if you want to open up your Bibles there. Genesis chapter 22, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. The title of the message is First Impression. Of course, it's been said you have one chance to make a first impression. I found that to be generally true in life. The very first time you meet someone, you immediately sort of begin gathering data, whether that's consciously or subconsciously. The things that they say, the way that they say it, the way that they present themselves, all of that, you begin forming some opinions and some judgments in your mind. For some of you, perhaps this is the very first time that you're hearing me speak, and so this is happening to me right now. (laughs) Some of you are making some judgments and assessments based off of the things that I say. Now, I want to cut something off right from the very beginning because it's wrong to have this first impression of me. Some of you are probably there thinking to yourself, oh no, they got some health nut to come and talk to us. I bet he shops at Jimbo's and it's organic food this and superfood that, and he probably has some intense workout regimen. Believe it or not, I don't go to the gym hardly ever, and I just kind of eat what I want. So that would be the wrong first impression to have of me. It's common, it's typical. I wish it wasn't understood so clearly as a joke, but I'll move on. A first impression is important. I think in the dating world, we're very familiar with this. You sometimes don't get a second date based off of how the first one went. I don't know if this truth could be any more present than in the job interview situation. In a job interview, all the pretense is gone, and the person giving the interview is quite literally judging you with pen and paper, and they want to see what kind of impression you're going to make. I'll never forget one of the first real job interviews that I had. I was 21 years old, newly engaged, unemployed. That's a rough combination. I figured I'm probably going to need a job. I hear getting married can be expensive. So I get a job interview. I get a new suit that probably still had the price tags on it. Not that the price tags were impressing anybody, but I thought I might have to return this when I'm done. So I go on the job interview, and I'm so incredibly nervous. And when you get really anxious, sometimes you can repeat yourself quite a bit, maybe use the same word over and over again. And for me in this job interview, I kept saying the word obvious or obviously. I would say things like, well, obviously, I think I'm a good fit for this company. My skill set is obvious and obviously, and just on and on with the obvious and this nervous tick that I had. And eventually towards the end of the interview, the guy giving the interview, he calls me out on it and he says, You know, you say the word obvious a lot, and quite frankly, I don't find half of what you're saying very obvious, and that's kind of offensive. Are you suggesting that I should know something that I don't know? To which I responded, well, obviously, and he didn't didn't find that funny. I don't know why. Now, the strange twist to that story is I got the job because I had some inside connections that went over his head, and so it was very awkward between us during that time. Uh, And the truth is, while I still got the job and I was able to smooth things over eventually with him, he always referred to me as Captain Obvious. That kind of burned into his mind and my first impression, I couldn't quite ever get past that. God seems to be familiar with this concept. 
Because oftentimes in the Bible, the very first time a word is mentioned or a subject is brought up, it becomes a key, it becomes a foundation to understanding what that word or what that subject is all about. In Genesis chapter 3, the very first time that the devil is going to be mentioned in the Bible, how is he described? As a serpent who's more cunning than any beast of the field. And he comes to Eve and he says, has God indeed said, you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And when you think about it, that becomes a pretty good foundation in understanding the enemy and the attack that he brings into our life. He's subtle. He's cunning. He's not always a dragon. He's not always holding a pitchfork with a tail. He's subtle. He's cunning. And he slightly questions the word of God. Has God indeed said? That's the same lie that he whispers into your heart, into my heart. And so Genesis 3, the first time he's brought up, it becomes this foundation in understanding. As a matter of fact, it's the very first question in the Bible, has God indeed said? The second question is followed by the Lord searching for Adam. Adam, where are you? And so we can see this concept being established, but I don't know that there's any greater demonstration of this truth than in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, we have three words that are used for the very first time. 21 chapters go by, plenty of opportunities that could have been used. Genesis 22, we have three words that are used for the very first time. Now, if you're familiar with this passage at all, then you know this is where God asks Abraham to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now that kind of stands out. That's quite a first impression to be making and to be waiting for these three words to be used. To say that it was unusual that God asked him to do that would be an understatement. He never asked it of anybody before. He'll never ask it of anybody again. And so what you have to understand going into a study like this is it has a lot more to do with the bigger picture than what God is asking of Abraham. Yes, he's testing him, and that's something that the Bible declares. That's something that we'll see. But there's a bigger picture. There's greater significance to the events of Genesis chapter 22, and that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Because in Genesis 22, you have this Old Testament picture of the cross. You see it come through in various passages from the Old Testament from different perspectives. Uh, Perhaps we could look at Psalm 22. That's the cross from the perspective of the Son. It's Psalm 22 that we read, strong bulls have surrounded me and they gape at me with their mouths and they divide my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots. It's in Psalm 22 that we read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cross from the perspective of the Son. Isaiah 53 is the cross from the perspective of the believer. It's in Isaiah 53 that we read about how the fact that our chastisement for our peace was upon him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It's by his stripes that we're healed. It's the cross from the perspective of the believer. But Genesis 22, this is the cross from the perspective of the Father. And it's where the gospel and the heart and the love of God is most clearly seen. Not only did Jesus die, but a father sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. And it's the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever seen. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. I'll read the first couple of verses here in Genesis 22, and then we'll get into our study. Genesis 22 verse 1 says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, 
your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, of course, a little bit of backstory here for context. God calls this man whose original name was Abram in Genesis 12. Get out of your country, out of your father's house to a land that I'll show you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And so you have this period of time between Genesis 12 and Genesis 21 where Abraham is waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. And years are going by and he and his wife Sarah don't have any children. Of course, if you remember the story somewhere in there, that's when Sarah comes up with this idea, well, maybe it's with my servant Hagar that you're supposed to have a child, and maybe we need to help God out here. This doesn't seem to be coming together, and Abraham goes along with that plan. Then, of course, you have Ishmael and all the problems that came as a result of that. And then God appears to Abraham and has to tell him, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael. There's going to be a miracle. It's going to be through Sarah that you're going to have a son. And that's where the blessing, that's where the promise is coming from. And so Abraham is waiting for that to be fulfilled. And then when he's 100 years old and Sarah is 99 years old, Isaac is finally born, miraculously. That happened in chapter 21. Now, when you start chapter 22, a period of time has gone by. Scholars debate to exactly how long it's been. We know from the language that's being used that Isaac isn't a little boy. He's referred to in this chapter as a young man. Some think could have actually been the same age of Jesus when he went to the cross, perhaps around 33 years old. And so some time has gone by, and now God brings this test to Abraham. Verse 1 specifically says, God tested Abraham. Here's the son that you've been waiting for. Here's the son of promise, and years and years going by, and now it's finally fulfilled. And so this test is presented. And of course, the reality is something that we can see from Scripture, something that perhaps you've experienced in your personal life, is God will allow to come into our lives. He does it because he wants to reveal what's really going on because one of the important things to understand is a test, it doesn't produce faith, it reveals faith. You can't wait until you're in the middle of a storm to think, oh, I better stir up some faith. No, the storm is just gonna reveal what's already there. And it has a way of bringing things to the surface perhaps that we are unaware of, sometimes good. Sometimes you go through a storm, you go through a trial, there's a testing of your faith, and you handle it with a little more grace, a little more patience than you even knew that you had. And you think, wow, Lord, I didn't even know that you did that. Years ago, I would have panicked, I would have been so stressed, I would have worried, God, you've really changed me. Sometimes it reveals good faith in our hearts and in our lives. Other times, impurities come to the surface. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so sometimes in the middle of a trial, in the middle of a testing, an impurity is brought to the surface. And it's in those moments that we have to say, oh Lord, forgive me. Oh Lord, would you wash me clean? Give me the power, give me the strength that I need. But in any case, whether it reveals something good or whether it reveals an impurity, God is gonna use it for our good. 
that we're able to come out of that season encouraged or we're able to come out of that season stronger because he's revealed what's really going on in our lives, what's going on in your heart. And so certainly this is a test for Abraham, but again, there's a much greater picture that we're going to see as we get a little bit further into this chapter God says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. It's the first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible, is right there in Genesis 22. 21 chapters went by, plenty of opportunities, the love that God has for all of the world, the love between a husband and wife or in family or so many opportunities that could have been used. He waits until chapter 22. And look at the context. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Of course, even as we say those words, we're reminded of the fact that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 1 John 4.10 says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, it means the sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God. God loves us so much that he sent his son to take the punishment that we deserve, right? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The penalty for sin is death. God loves us so much he sent his son to take our place, to be that sacrifice that would satisfy his wrath, his love on display. And of course, as a parent, you consider a passage like this and you would think, what dad would do that? What father, what mother could stand by and watch these things happen to their child as Jesus was beat and whipped and his beard ripped from his face and he's nailed to a cross to imagine God the Father there and present and allowing these things to take place. As a parent, it's hard to comprehend. I've been on the playground ready to wage war with the local bully that's messing with my kids, let alone real violence. Everything in us as parents, that every fiber of our being, when our child is in trouble, when our child is experiencing pain, we think, oh, I would do anything to bring relief. I would do anything to take their place, and our heart breaks for them. My daughter, Tella, she's 13 years old, so on a side note, you could pray for me, but when she was eight years old, she broke her arm. She was doing some backflip off of the monkey bars and broke her arm. My wife had walked to the park, and so she calls me and says, Tella broke her arm, I come flying. And I pick her up, I get her in the car, I drive like a maniac to the emergency room. Now, of course, in the grand scheme of things, a broken arm wasn't the greatest emergency that that hospital was seeing. But as far as I was concerned, holding my eight-year-old, listening to her cry, as far as I was concerned, that was the greatest emergency. I need every doctor, I need every nurse, I need a team, staff. Everyone getting in my way is now suddenly my enemy. Get this clipboard out of my face. You need to help my little girl. That's the heart of a parent. We can relate to that. We can understand that. Can you imagine God the Father not only allowing these things to take place, but actually actively involved in the process. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
sweating drops of blood under this extreme pressure. And he prays, Father, Abba, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This cup of God's wrath, three times he prays, if it's possible, let it pass from me. And yet, of course, we know it was not possible. There was no other means of salvation. And then Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to realize and understand that that cup couldn't pass from Jesus, that he was forsaken so that you and I would never have to be forsaken. That's the love of God. And I can say with all authority of scripture, God loves you. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what trial you might be going through. I don't know if I find you in a good season or a bad season, but I can say with all authority, God loves you because he's demonstrated it already in sending his son. He sent his son while we were yet sinners, while we were in active rebellion against God. Christ died for us and the love of God on display. And so he says, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Moriah is made up of two words. It's Yah, which is the shortened form of Yahweh, the name of God, and Ra'ah, which means to see. And so Moriah is the place where Yahweh is seen, where Yahweh is revealed. I feel like you can't make this stuff up. Here you have the very first time the word love is used in the Bible, and it's connected to a father offering up his son as a sacrifice. Where does that take place? Where Yahweh is seen where Yahweh is revealed. Mount Moriah, this is where David would bring the tabernacle. This is where Solomon would later build the temple. But of course, Genesis 22 happens long before that. In the days of Abraham, an offering would typically be made at the highest peak of the mountain, at the very top. And if you follow Mount Moriah to its peak, you come to Golgotha, the place of a skull, Calvary. It's quite possible that Abraham is being directed to offer up his son as as a sacrifice on Calvary, the very place where Jesus would lay down his life. God says, I want you to go to one of the mountains of which I shall tell you about. Now, there's part of the conversation that isn't recorded because God says, well, I'll tell you about this mountain. And then verse three, Abraham gets up early in the morning and he goes. So apparently there's some part of the conversation that isn't recorded down and we're just sort of left to wonder just how much did God tell Abraham about this mountain? Just how much did he tell him about Calvary and the sacrifice that would be made there? Abraham seems to have an extraordinary amount of faith. We're going to see that as this chapter goes on. He has this understanding that if necessary, God could raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that. And so we just wonder, what did God tell Abraham about this mountain? Did he tell him about Calvary? Did he tell him about the cross? Did he tell him about his son? Verse three says, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. 
And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Verse three just simply says, Abraham rose early in the morning and left. Seemingly without any hesitation. I don't know what kind of a night that was for Abraham if he didn't get a whole lot of sleep, if he got up early because he's thinking, hey, let's just get this over with. But as you're reading through this passage, it would just seem that without any hesitation, he's going to be obedient, he's going to go, he's going to do what God is telling him to do. And of course, as we consider Genesis 22 being the cross from the perspective of the Father, isn't it amazing that without any hesitation, knowing what the cost would be, God sent his son to die for you and for me. Without any hesitation, have you considered how valuable you are to the Lord? Isn't value based off of what you're willing to pay for something? God was willing to pay with the life of his only son. Without any hesitation, he sent him into this world. Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He says in verse 3, that he takes, he speaks to some of the young men who are there with him. That word for young men in verse three, it's the same word that's used for Isaac in verse five when it says the lad and I will go yonder and worship. Just another example that we're talking about a young man. We're not talking about a little boy. Verse four says the journey took three days. Of course, this whole chapter is so rich with symbolism. I'd encourage you to go through it on your own at a slower pace. He's, the journey took three days as Jesus was in the tomb for three days, so this journey took three days. Of course, he says in verse 5, we will come back to you. Again, speaking of his faith, speaking of the reality that Abraham knew if he has to raise my son from the dead, I know that's something that he's capable of doing. And so this obedience that we see when he says, the lad and I will go yonder and worship. And here's the second first mention of Genesis 22. It's the first time that the word worship is used in the Bible. Now, it's possible if there's some Hebrew scholars here, you might point out that this word worship, the Hebrew word is shahah. It's used in Genesis 18 and it's used in Genesis 19 as well. What the word literally means is to bow down. And in Genesis 18 and Genesis 19, that's what was happening. They were literally bowing down. Genesis 18 is there's two angels and then it would seem to be the angel of the Lord is Jesus is there and Abraham comes and he literally bows down. In Genesis 19, it's just the two angels and then Lot and he comes and bows down. Now, when Lot bows down to two angels, we must not be talking about worship because angels would have never received that worship. But it was describing what he literally did. He literally bowed down. So Genesis 22 is the first time the word is used in this right context, worship of God. And where is it taking place? on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh is revealed. Worship is a response to the revelation of God. He initiates, he reveals himself to us, and then we respond to him. The greater the revelation, the greater the response. You know, as I was preparing the message this week, as I got to that point, I was thinking about Pastor Ray. The greater the revelation, the greater the response. There was so much that was revealed to him. And so all of the passion, all of the devotion, all of the worship that we saw in his life 
directly related to what had been revealed to him and his personal relationship with the Lord. But the reality is that's available for all of us without any reservation. We can open up our Bibles. We can come into the presence of the Lord. We can seek his face, and he never turns us away. Sometimes we focus on the response. We focus on the action. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to worship when we're the ones initiating it. When the power and the strength is coming from the flesh, it's a practice in frustration. But when we come into the presence of the Lord and we just see Jesus, we see him in his beauty and his glory and his majesty, the natural response is worship and devotion. And so here, the lad and I will go yonder and worship the very first time it's used. And I find that interesting Because sometimes when we think of the word worship, we think of emotions or feeling or perhaps singing to the Lord. And I love singing to the Lord. I love those times of worship in song. But it's interesting that the very first time the word worship is used in the Bible, it's connected to obedience. To obey the Lord is better than sacrifice. And that's where worship is clearly seen. It's not just when we're worshiping out of convenience or we're worshiping the Lord and it actually makes sense to us and this sounds good and I'm going to go ahead and worship him. Worship is most clearly seen when his will and my will are coming head to head, when there's a conflict, when I don't understand what's going on. Maybe when my flesh wants to respond in a different way, this isn't what I would do, Lord. It's in those moments, if I bow down and I surrender and I say, Lord, I'm going to put you first in my life, that's worship. So he says, the lad and I are going to go yonder and worship. Verse 6 says, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Throughout this passage, of course, you notice how actively involved Abraham is in this whole process. He lays the wood for the burnt offering, and he's the one initiating all of these things. Of course, oftentimes we think about the Romans and the part that they played in the crucifixion of Jesus, or the religious leaders and how they rejected him. But truly, God the Father was actively involved in this process. It says in verse 6, the two of them went together, then that phrase gets repeated in verse 8. It speaks of the fact that they were going in total agreement. Now, in our story, clearly Isaac is piecing things together, and yet he trusts his father. He trusts that Abraham's really heard from the Lord, and so he submitted to this process. But in the bigger picture, Jesus, completely aware of what was being asked of him and what the plan was, it says the two of them went together in agreement. But as Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? It's the first time the word lamb is used in the Bible. Plenty of opportunities it could have been used before. God waits till chapter 22 
to use the word lamb. Of all of the sacrifices that would ever take place, of all of the lambs that would ever be offered, God is saying it's all pointing to this sacrifice. It's pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's interesting because Genesis 22 presents it as a question, where is the Lamb? Then the first time the word Lamb is used in the New Testament, it's in the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist answers the question from the Old Testament and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice that had to be offered. One who is totally innocent, one who lived a holy, righteous, pure life, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Verse eight, the language here is very interesting because it could literally be translated that the Lord will provide himself as a lamb. Now it's possible that Abraham was speaking prophetically there and didn't even realize it. Or again, you just wonder how much God had told him about what was eventually gonna happen on that mountain. But he speaks the truth. The Lord will provide himself as a lamb. Verse nine says, then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham builds the altar. He lays the wood in order. He binds Isaac and raises the knife. It says that the angel of the Lord calls out to him from heaven. In all likelihood, this is Jesus himself calling out to Abraham. It becomes clear that it really couldn't be an angel who's speaking to him. Because the angel says, now I know that you fear God, seeing as you haven't withheld your son, your only son, from me. That could be no angel speaking to Abraham. This is God. And it's almost as if Jesus is arriving on the scene and he's stopping Abraham and he says to him, only one son is going to be offered on this hill as a sacrifice. And it's not Isaac. Jesus says, it's me. And so he tells Abraham to stop. He passed this test and, and now this incredible revelation is given says in verse 13, they found a ram that was caught in the thicket. And so the ram becomes a substitute for Isaac, thus another picture of Christ who died in our place. Interesting Jewish tradition says that this day took place on Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. And so you have the ram caught in the thicket, the ram's horn, the shofar, the sounding of trumpets. They say it happened on this day. He calls the name of the place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. 
on Moriah, the place where Yahweh is seen, the place where Yahweh is revealed. And we just stand back and we look at a passage like this and we think to ourselves, what was provided on that mountain? A lamb, a sacrifice, a savior that took the punishment that should have fallen upon us. But you know something interesting? If a lamb was gonna be offered as a sacrifice, you had to come up to that lamb and you had to put your hand on its head. And what you were acknowledging is that this lamb was being sacrificed for me. It's my sin. That's why blood has to be shed. And the same is true for Jesus, the lamb of God, the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. It's absolutely true. But you have to personally put your hand upon Jesus. And you have to say, yes, this was the Lamb of God who died in my place. It's not enough that this sacrifice has been made 2,000 years ago on Calvary. It's not enough that other people in our family, or if I've been coming to church for a number of years, we each have to personally come and put our hand to the Lamb, put our hand to Jesus and say, yes, he died in my place. That's what was provided on that mountain, a lamb, that we might worship him. We've been created in the likeness and the image of God. We've been created to know him. We've been created to worship him. But because of sin, we've been separated from God. And that's why if we're not right with Jesus, if we're not right with God, that's why nothing will ever really satisfy and we chase after the things that this world offers, and we think a little bit more, a little bit further, and it's never enough. No matter how much of the world's pleasure or power that we gain, we have this sinking feeling in the pit of our stomach, something's missing, something's not right, and it's because we've been created to know God. We've been created to worship God. And so what was provided on that mountain? a lamb to be a sacrifice that we might be able to worship, that we might be able to come into his presence. What was seen on that mountain? The love of God on full display. Something that we never have to question. We don't have to be afraid as Christians. We don't have to be worried. We don't have to be overwhelmed. We don't have to wonder, well, is God really going to step in to this situation because his love has already been demonstrated? He's already given his son. How will he not freely give us all things, the Bible says? And so we could ask the question, where is the love? But that's an easy question to answer. The love is found in God. The love is found in Jesus we could say, where is the lamb? That's an easy one too. He is the lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world. Here's the real question for us to consider tonight. Where is the worship? Where is the response? Where is the obedience? Where do we bow down and surrender and respond to him? Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's your reasonable act of worship. 
Present your body as a living sacrifice. And of course, you share that with an unbeliever and it sounds so extreme. It sounds like God is asking too much. But when you consider Jesus, when you consider God the Father sending his son to be a sacrifice for our sins, that he loves us that much, that he desires relationship with us, that he's good and that he's faithful and that he's worthy of all of our praise, of all of our worship, that's where it's our reasonable act of service. And so we say, Lord, give me greater revelation of who you are because I want to respond to you in a way that you're worthy of. Amen? We'll stop there for tonight. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. And Lord, I just lift up each person here tonight. You know them by name. You know what's going on in their hearts and their minds. Lord, I just pray that if there's even one person here who they've never come to you, Jesus, personally, they've never put their hand on the lamb, so to speak, They've never said, Jesus, thank you for dying in my place and for rising from the dead. Lord, I pray tonight would be the night. Bind the enemy from trying to rob, steal, and destroy. I pray tonight would be the night that they would say yes to you, Jesus, and invite you in and experience forgiveness and grace and love. Lord, for all of us here who know you and love you, we just pray for greater revelation. Take us deeper, take us further in our relationship with you than we've ever been before and may we respond in a way that brings you glory, that brings you honor and praise. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. We just thank you. We give you this time. We pray that your word would sink deep into our hearts that you'd have your way in us. We love you and praise you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.